Well, this is the final message in our marriage series. Our goal throughout this series, called No Ordinary Marriage, was to give all of us some key insights from Scripture where we are allowing God's wisdom to speak into our understanding of and our living out of this most important and fundamental of all relationships called marriage. Now, throughout this series, we have been using the book um, by Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, as a resource uh, that we've been pointing out to you that it's a great resource uh, to use if you're a married couple. It's a great resource to give to your children if they're married. It's a great resource to give to your children if they're dating or engaged. It's a great resource to give to your grandchildren. Um, so again, it's a great resource that we would encourage you to use. And also we have another resource, though, that we just want to remind uh, all of you, if you're a married couple or if you're dating or if you're engaged, doesn't matter. Um, after our big night out, uh, they, they had handed out these nice little uh, devotional booklets called The Marriage Renovation. And uh, tonight uh, we're going to have our marriage care coordinator, Dave Tramley, uh, hand those out to you as you leave as a marriage resource for you. Now, we also want to welcome right now the Brentwood campus and all those who are also watching this on YouTube and or a podcast. Please take advantage also of our digital outline that's available through the app called YouVersion. And if you uh, like to follow along. Now, I'll tell you this. I always have a few extra little enjoyable Easter eggs, you can call them, on the YouVersion app in the outline that I simply can't put on the paper outline. But please also use the paper outline um, to follow along if that helps as well. Well, in this series, we've been sort of building what I call a marriage cake. So let's go to that slide, the marriage cake. And um, we've been saying that if you want to have a good marriage cake, there's, these are the big ideas that we've been walking through in this No Ordinary Marriage series. The first thing we looked at is that marriage is gospel. That a Christian understanding, a Christian vision for marriage is that you have to apply the gospel to your marriage. Well, what does that mean? Well, husbands, um, you know, Paul writes to the husbands in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, uh, you know, you love your wa wives, not your lives, wives. You love your wife just as Christ loved the church. That is a powerful statement. I'll keep reiterating it. And I want to challenge all the husbands here or any man who's planning on getting married, that when you love your wife, you're to love her as Christ loves the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He died for her. He sacrificed his life for her. He served her in the most powerful way. So, but, but that call for that type of love that Christ has for the church is really a call for both spouses, okay? And um, that's the first thing we saw was marriage is gospel. And then we, we looked at marriage is covenant. And we really wrestled with this big idea that um, when you come into marriage, you're not just having a, a sort of a lease, you know, to kind of try it out and kick the tires. You are, uh, a covenant is a long-term binding commitment uh, embodied in a legal document. And we saw the power of what covenant does. It gives the foundation of security and the power of that promise gives freedom for that marriage to flourish. So we talked about the power of the covenant. And then uh, last week we talked about marriage as friendship. 
And we really challenge all spouses that they need to treat their uh, partners not merely as lovers and not merely as associates or domestic help. They need to treat them as their best friend. That that is your best friend. If you're uh, married and you're sitting next to your partner right now, that person is your best friend. That's God's intent. Well, if you want to get all the other details of those three messages, they're on our website. You can go and check out uh, that and, 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 and follow along. Well, today we want to finish this marriage cake by bringing the last layer in, and we want to talk about marriage as love. And you're sort of saying, well, well, of course, I was waiting for this one, you know, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. Well, um, well, the challenge, though, and here's the challenge, because the title of this message is called Moving from Being in Love to Love. Because what happens is a couple can move from the high of being in love, where at first love sweeps you up involuntarily, but eventually one has to move to a place where love has to become a deliberate choice. Now, if you're following along on the YouVersion app, I have a great little video called Not So Newlyweds, and you just got to watch it. It's really quite good. But it shows the tension of being in love, all that romantic high to now being, what does it mean to deliberately love one another? Um, and, and what I want us to see is that we want to move to a place where we have such a profound understanding of love in a marriage that we understand it is a deliberate choice. And even if it seems mechanical at first, but if both spouses are willing to learn together, eventually the experience of being loved well will sweeten their lives. It's, as we look at the scriptures, we think of what Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says, let love be your highest goal. Let love be your highest goal. You know, love that is deep and lasting and strong and sure with someone who we have made lifelong promises to, that love is far richer and complex than simply saying the phrase, I love you. Now, don't, please don't misunderstand me. It's good for you to say to your spouse every day, I love you. But please understand that that is simply the first step into really grasping the profound dynamics and dimensions of what love in this marriage is supposed to be. So I want us to consider today the dynamics of love from the perspective of Scripture, but I also want to use an analogy. And, I, and seeing that we're right now in the middle, well, coming to the end, I should say, of the 2014 Sochi Olympics, I thought, why don't I use an analogy for marriage? And so I got looking at all the different events that are in the Winter Olympics, and I, thought, I got watching the, the two-man bobsled event, and I got thinking, that could be a good analogy for marriage. And you'll, you'll see it in a minute how I got that. And uh, I thought, well, in spirit of that, let's watch the, the women's two-man bobsled event where they won the gold medal. So let's just watch that. Let's just enjoy that for a moment. second and third. (laughs) 
So, as we think about that image of the two-man bobsled, I got thinking about, you know, getting down the track takes a lot of power of that push. In fact, Heather Moyce, who's from PEI, was the big pusher, right? That was her job. But both of them had a push with a lot of power to generate just in those first few seconds because apparently whatever they did in those first few seconds really had a profound implication on how well they would do at the end of the finish line. You know, as we think about this imagery of the two-man bobsled, I want us to consider what makes a good marriage. I want us to think about what kind of power we need to push our marriage sled with in order to propel it forward so that it moves from being in love to love how we can cross that finish line in, in glory, okay? Um, so I just want to take the next few minutes and just talk about what I call the three types of power that, that push our marriage sled down that ice track or down that life track, I guess. So here's the first type of power we need. We need the power of affirming love. We need the power of affirming love. Now, I don't have the word affirming there, so please feel free to write that in. I want to put that adjective in because it's a very important adjective. It's the power of affirming love. Um, now, now, love that affirms is a very powerful force for any marriage. It lets that person know that they are accepted and safe within that relationship. When I know that I am affirmed and approved by the one whom I've made a long-term binding commitment to, it now gives me the space in my life to reprogram my self-image, redeem my past, and heal my deepest hurts. So let's get really practical just for a moment and ask ourselves, what does it mean to be able to push onto our marriage sled this affirming love? Let this be, really be a force in our marriage. Well, I'm going to say it bluntly. You've got to learn how to speak your spouse's language. You've got to learn how to speak your spouse's language. Now, if we say I love you to someone who does not understand a word of English, now you've said it, I love you, but like let's say Stan said it to someone in Lao. Well, guess what would happen? That person would not understand what that person is saying. In fact, it could be misunderstood. Um, you see, we may be sending love in our, our love language to our partner, but it's not being received. And what we must learn to do if we're going to show affirming love is to send love in forms that the other person can comprehend. If we don't learn the languages of our spouse, we will find that love is being sent in a marriage, but it's not being received. Here's a classic case. One partner having, spending time together matters a lot. Another partner, it's acts of service that matters a lot. So the husband comes home, the wife says, oh, if he really loved me, he'll come in and we'll sit together around the fireplace and we'll chat about the book I've been reading all day long. The husband, wanting to show his love to his wife, says, I'm going to stay outside in the yard and chop down three trees and get all the firewood put together for the winter months coming five months from now. So the wife's in the house feeling very neglected. The husband's out there thinking he's doing a great thing because he's speaking in his love language. And so when he comes into the house, she's mad and he's upset because he goes, well, look what I did for you. And voila, you have two people speaking two different languages, misunderstanding each other. Love is being sent, but it's not being received well. And I've seen couples married 60 years still doing this to each other. 
I've seen couples marry 30 years, like myself, still doing this to each other, and couples who are just brand, brand new married. You've got to learn each other's love language. Now, it's interesting that biblically, from a gospel point of view, that's what God did for us, right? For those of you who know the Old Testament, Moses um, asked to see God, and God basically said, you can't see my glory because if you do, you'll be ashes. You'll be, it's lethal for you. It'll kill you. But then we read in the New Testament that when God came into the form of Jesus, his son, guess what? We beheld his glory. So Moses, who couldn't behold the glory of God, could see the glory of God through Jesus. He, God spoke to us in a way we could understand his glory. He spoke in our language of love. So now, if we're going to think about speaking your spouse's love language, there are three main categories. Now, some of you who've read Gary Chapman's book on the love languages, you know there's like five. Others maybe even suggest there's seven. But I'm going to give you the three broad categories. The first broad category of love language is affection. Affection is showing fondness and devotion to someone. And here are some examples. Eye contact, looking at the other person, caresses, sitting closely together, um, doing walks together, sitting before a fireplace, going for a drive, having a picnic, even letting the other person know that you're planning those things is part of affection. Um, taking care of your own personal appearance can be a sign of affection. Playfulness and fun are also creates affection. Um, learning to say I love you in fresh and new ways is another way to show affection. Writing up cards, letters, um, thoughtful reflections on special occasions such as anniversaries. And, and also giving gifts is another way to show affection. So there are, are, there's the love language of affection. Now here's the second love language. Um, friendship. Friendship. Um, friendship um, really comes down to a few critical things. Um, it's spending time together. Um, it also means doing something that at least one of you loves doing and that enables you to communicate while doing it. It's also doing common work tasks together. Um, it's making sure your spouse knows that you will give priority time in your life to your spouse. Friendship also means you will be supportive and loyal when nobody else is. Um, it also means that you'll enter into each other's mental world. You'll talk about what ideas are you thinking about? What books are you reading? You'll want to grow together. Um, friendship also means you'll listen and open up to each other. I mean, when you have a friend, right, that's the person you share your fears with, your hurts, and your weaknesses. That's, that friend should be the place where it's an emotional refuge. But that means then that the other friend, your spouse, will have to learn how to listen. And it's interesting that often in a relationship, spouses struggle with two things about, at this level. They either struggle to be good listeners, or they may be a really good listener, but then they struggle to really open up. But if you are going to develop a deep friendship, this is a love language, you'll spend time together and you'll open up and listen to each other. That's what friends do. Now here's the third uh, language of, of, of love. Um, it's service. 
Service, serving each other begins with the most practical and menial task. For example, it means happily changing diapers. And thank goodness that chapter's done for me. Well, at least for now. Who knows? Maybe in my grampy days that's going to happen. I don't know. There's, I'm not, I don't know when that's going to happen, but somewhere down the road. Um, it's, it's helping with the house cleaning, with, with the domestic management of the home. Um, but you know, serving also means showing your spouse respect, him or her. It, it means giving your spouse the confidence that you always speak up and stand up for him or her that you'll show loyalty and appreciation. You can also serve your spouse by being committed to their well-being and flourishing. Um, that means that if your spouse has a gift or an ability, you should be serving them by saying, how can I serve you? And so you can grow in that ability or opportunity that God has obviously given you. Can I also tell you another way that you can really serve your spouse? This is a tough one. It's when there is a behavior or an attitude in yourself that hurts your spouse. And your spouse finally takes the, the courageous step and says, when you do that, I feel really hurt. And you say, because I love you the way I, Jesus loves the church, I will serve you by trying to change that behavior or attitude, even though I've been doing it for the last 20, 30, 40 years. I'll, I'm going to serve you because that's what Jesus wants me to do. So those are, those are the three primary love languages. And now remember, if we're going to push that marriage sled down the ice track, we've got to have affirming love. And how do we affirm each other? We learn each other's love languages, and the three love languages are affection, friendship, and service. Okay, so that's the first push. But there's another push to this marriage sled, and, it, and we do it with the push called the power of truth, okay? The power of truth. And that's the other big push. Um, now, with the power of truth, um, it's so important, right? If you're not truthful with each other, you aren't allowing the relationship to grow, right? You, you, there's not a place for, for growth and for depth and for reflection and for feedback. But we also know the power of truth is dangerous because it can really hurt, right? And actually, the person who can hurt us the most is the person we have allowed to get the closest to us, and that person we allow to get closest to us is our husband or our wife. And they know our deepest weaknesses because, let's be honest, if, let's say, for example, I'm selfish or I got a temper, guess who's probably been on the butt end of that experience more than anyone else? Not your workers, not your neighbors, not your children. I guarantee you, it's been your spouse who has received your weaknesses the most. And actually, when you and I really wrestle with that reality, that makes even, even hearing it from me, right? It stings a bit. Now imagine if your spouse, after the service, talks to you about and says, can I tell you the one thing that has really hurt me over the last number of years? Woo! Woo, now we're getting into truth. Now here's the problem. Truth, the one thing if we're going to manage the power of truth well and keep that powers our sled forward is that we can't use truth as a weapon. Can't use truth as a weapon. Um, I want to quote Keller from his book, The Meaning of Marriage, to, to drive this home. Listen to what he says. In this fallen world, marriage's power of truth and power of love can be at loggerheads. 
When we are first sinned against by our spouses in a serious way, we use the power of truth. We tell our spouses that what fools, what messes, what selfish pigs they are. The first few times we do it, however, we may learn to our surprise at how shattering our criticism can be. Sometimes we let fly with some real harsh and insulting remarks, and the next thing we know, there's nothing left of our spouses but a pair of sneakers with smoke coming out of them. Okay? What happened, says Keller, because of our own spousal power of affirming love, remember that affirming love thing we said first of all, that our spouses so desperately need? The statement of truth doesn't help, it destroys. When we see, now here's the challenge, when we see how devastating truth-telling in marriage can be, it pushes us often to an opposite error. We may then decide that our job in our marriage is just to affirm. We avoid telling our spouses how disappointed we are. We shut up. We stuff it. We hide it what we really think and feel. We exercise the power of love, but we have refused now to exercise the power of truth. Have you caught this? But then our marriage's enormous potential for spiritual growth and development is now lost. If I come, in fact, to realize that my spouse is not really being truthful with me, then her loving affirmations become less powerful in my life. Only when I know that my spouse regularly tells me the truth will her loving affirmations also encourage and change me. The point is this. Truth and love need to be kept together, but it is very, very, very hard, isn't it? So there's the great problem. Spouses either stay away from the truth and they end up bouncing off each other and not really being real and not really growing together to where God wants them to become or else they attack one another and they shatter up against each other. And guess what happens? Either the marriage goes cold and dead or divorce happens. So what do we do with all this? Well, I just want to say one more thing about this whole truth thing about not using it as a weapon. Listen carefully to this. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says that if you're praying and you realize that you have something against someone, he says, forgive him or her right there. So if you're right now, if you're thinking of someone or you think of your spouse, you got, I got to forgive. Jesus says, forgive right away. But now listen, a lot of people then say, well, I forgave, so I guess I don't need to confront now. I'll just ignore it. Uh-uh, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you should confront that person. In fact, you read it in Matthew 18, and, and also Paul in Galatians 6 and elsewhere. It tells Christians that if someone wrongs them, they should go and discuss their sin with them. Wait, we say, the Bible says we're supposed to forgive people and then go and confront them? Hang on, yes. You forgive and then you confront now, here's the problem. The reason why a lot of people do not do this in any of their relationships, and oh, by the way, this is a great example where this marriage series applies to every relationship. This truth I'm sharing with you goes way beyond marriage, but boy, it has to happen in marriages. But the reason why we're surprised about forgiving and then confronting is because if we're honest, when have you told people the truth? You've told people the truth because I, I don't need to look any further than Dave. I look over the years when I've confronted people at times with the truth and it's a way of getting them back. I say, okay, let me tell you what I think of you. 
And let me tell you what everybody else has been saying about you. And let me just let you know what your actions have been causing on everybody else for the last number of months and years. Let me just tell you, because I'm going to share with you right now some truth. Now, I don't think that's how Jesus wants us to share truth. Because guess what? Truth, when it's shared that way, is a weapon. Truth and that way is being used for revenge. You made me feel bad. I'm now going to share the truth with you so you feel bad. And that is not the way of Jesus. And that's not how Jesus wants us to share truth with one another in our marriage. Because if we share the truth with a spirit of revenge or just to hurt back, guess what will happen to the other person? They will either be devastated or infuriated. And I guarantee you, usually it's both. And you're left with bitterness and anger and a broken relationship. So, how do we hold love and truth together? Well, here we go. We need the third power to push this marriage sled down the ice track of life. We have the power of affirming love, the power of truth. We can't lose it, but we now need the power of grace. Grace, remember, is this. It's that undeserved favor that it, you can't earn it. It's unmerited love. It's not about my ability or my loveliness. It's about God accepting me in my unloveliness. And when I get my eyes on that type of grace, it changes how I then approach my spouse when they're not lovely and I want them to become lovely. You know, when you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, forgiving you, putting away your sin, that changes everything. Listen, Jesus saw the bottom of you, but he loved you to the skies. And the joy and freedom that comes from knowing that the Son of God did that for you, now that enables you to do the same for your spouse. When you have received that amazing love, that amazing grace from God through Christ, that is the very type of love. Remember, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And the type of love he gave us was this grace-filled love. Now you should, see, now in your marriage, you now show that affirming love and truth with humility because you no longer have a sense of superiority. You say, Jesus died for me, I'm a sinner. And also though, you do it with a joyful confidence because you say, you know, you may not like me right now as we talk about this, but I know God loves me and accepts me so I can go forward with a sort of confidence. You know, when we embrace God's grace, we can start to learn we can start to learn the skill to tell, now listen, the straight unvarnished truth about what our spouse has done and then completely unselfrighteously and joyously express forgiveness without a shred of superiority, without making the other person in our marriage feel small. Now this does not mean you cannot express anger. In fact, if you never express anger, I would suggest to you your truth telling probably won't sink in. But forgiving grace must always be present. And if it is, it will be like salt and meat, keeping the anger from going bad. And then what will happen is in your marriage, you will have truth and love living together because beneath them both, you have been forgiven in Christ just as your spouse has. And that's grace. And now you have grace and love and truth all coming together. So what does that mean really practically? Well, just very simply, it will mean that you will never play fair with your spouse. It'll never be tit for tat. It'll never be, well, you did that, so I'm gonna get you back and I'll do this. 
Well, you didn't get up and get me coffee on Monday, so I'm not getting up and getting you coffee on Tuesday. You're not going to do that. You're not going to keep a record of wrongs because you know that Christ didn't keep a record of wrongs with you. So you are going to show grace. You're going to show forgiveness, but you're still going to speak the truth. You know, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that Jesus laid down his life for us, forgiving us at a great cost to make us something beautiful. And because he's done it for us, we can do the same for others. Remember, our sins hurt Jesus infinitely more than your spouse's sins hurt you. You may feel your spouse at times is crucifying you, but our sins really did put Jesus on the cross, and yet he forgave us. So what do we do as we think about this sled going down the ice of life, this two-man sled of marriage? Well, I would suggest to you that you need to look to the grace of God um, you know, I just want to end on really saying this is what a Christian vision for marriage is. There are other visions for marriage out there that don't have any of this framework of the Bible and the gospel to it. But this is what makes a Christian marriage so vital and so strong. You know what you can say to your spouse who's wronged you? You can say this, I see your sin, but I cover it with forgiveness because Jesus saw my sin and covered it. It's because the Lord of the universe came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and he looked into our hearts and he saw the worst and it wasn't some abstract exercise for Jesus. Our sins put him to death. And when Jesus was up there, he was nailed to the cross. He looked down and he saw us. Some of us were denying him. Some were betraying him. All were forsaking him. But he saw our sin and he covered it in his, in his blood. He covered it with his life. So ultimately, for marriages, it means that we have to allow a source that's beyond us to let us slide down through life on this marriage sled. And I just want to end on this quote from Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Let's bring that up. I do not know of any more powerful resource for granting forgiveness than that. And I don't know of anything more necessary in marriage than the ability to forgive fully, freely, unpunishingly from the heart. Now, this next line is incredibly important. A deep experience of the grace of God, a knowledge that you are a sinner saved by grace, will enable the power of truth and love to work together for your marriage. So, my words to you all, all of you who are watching, is let's push off with the power of affirming love, the power of truth, and the power of grace. And let's push off with those powers together onto our marriage sled. But let's never forget what this Christian marriage sled travels on. It travels on ice, right? Or actually, it travels on the very grace of God itself. It travels on us experiencing deeply His grace and His forgiveness in Christ. And when you both grasp this, you will begin to help each other and together move to something absolutely glorious that will last forever. Let's pray. And at this time, I'm going to hand this off to Carolyn as she makes this a time of prayer and ministry for her service. Lord, um, help us to see what grace you've shown to us in Christ. Jesus, you gave your life. You looked down and you saw the very bottom of us and yet you loved us to the skies. You gave us life. You died so we might live. 
Now, Lord Jesus, may that very love and grace and truth enter into our marriages and help us to, when we say, I love you, show it through affirming love, show it through truth, and show it through grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you as you move out into this week.